The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. I want to um, enlist the help of anyone in the front row. If during the course of this message I begin to slur my words or even fall asleep, just come up and nudge me. Um, we flew in late last night, got in at around 11-something, and it's been a short night for me. But I am excited to be here because I'm going to talk to you about something that I think is really important. And it is a subject that um, over the course of my pastoral ministry and in my own life, I think it is a subject that has created and easily does create a lot of consternation, anxiety, uh, sometimes presumption. And it is this um, topic of how do I know what God wants me to do? Some of you have heard me speak about this in class, and um, you're just gonna have to listen to it again, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I have said to myself, and I have prayed to God, whenever I have an opportunity to talk to Christians about this subject, I will utilize it. I could tell you many, many stories of how it is that people's lives, including my own, have been marked by either paralysis for fear of somehow, when faced with decisions, possibly missing the will of God, or presumption, on the other hand, where people have gone headlong into foolish decisions, confident that this is what God wanted them to do. And I have called this a brief examination of what the Bible has to say about the will of God and our responsibility. It will be brief, but I hope for you it will be introductory and that it will lead you to think more in depth about this very important topic. We live in an age in which we are faced with a multitude of decisions, perhaps far more than any, no, it's not perhaps, definitely. We live in an age in which we are faced with more decisions than any previous generation because of the freedoms and the options that are available to us. In his book, Just Do Something, Kevin, help me, DeYoung, thank you, I told you it was gonna happen. Um, Kevin DeYoung says this, the hesitancy so many of us, especially the young, feel in making decisions and settling down in life and therefore diligently searching for the will of God has at least two sources. I'm only gonna share the first that he gives. First, the new generation the new generations enjoy, or at least think they enjoy, unparalleled freedom. Nothing is settled after high school or even college anymore. Life is wide open and filled with endless possibilities, but with this sense of opportunity comes confusion, anxiety, and indecision. With everything I could do, and everywhere I could go, how can I know what's what? 
enter a passion to discern God's will for my life. That's a key reason there is always a market for books about the will of God. I would add to that, there's a, that's also the reason that there's always a market for books about learning how to hear God's voice so that you can make the proper decisions. Well, this question of what is our responsibility in terms of making decisions as we face them is not a new one. It is one that has um, occupied the minds of Christians for many, many years. Um, if you don't know the name, you do know this man's work, John Newton, the hymn writer, the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, the former slave ship captain who became a pastor of two churches in um, England. And he was very well known for his letter writing ministry. We have over a thousand extant uh, letters of Newton as he would write to people who were seeking him for spiritual counsel. And um, one of those letters was from an, a gentleman who asked a question of this sort. In what manner are we to expect the Lord's promised guidance to influence our judgments and direct our steps in the path of duty? In other words, this man was asking, what is our responsibility when we are faced with decisions so as to know what it is that God would have us do? And Newton's response, in part, was as follows. Dear sir, it is well for those who are duly sensible, now you have to expect, this is 18th century, so I will we'll work our way through this. It is well for those who are duly sensible of their own weakness and fallibility and of the difficulties with which they are surrounded in life, that the Lord has promised to guide his people with his eye and to cause them to hear a word behind them saying, this is the way walk in it when they are in danger of turning aside either to the right hand or to the left. For this purpose, he has given us the written word to be a lamp to our feet and encouraged us to pray for the teaching of his Holy Spirit that we may rightly understand and apply it. It is, however, and pay attention to what he is going to say here. It is, however, too often seen that many widely deviate from the path of duty and commit gross and perplexing mistakes while they profess a sincere desire to know the will of God and think they have his warrant and authority. In other words, there, it, it's a widespread error where people are saying, I have discovered the will of God. They therefore give the decision that they are making the authority of God. And Newton is saying, this is not always the case. And he continues and says, this must certainly be owing to misapplication of the rule by which they judge, since the rule itself is infallible and the promise sure. The scripture cannot deceive us if rightly understood. So he's affirming the reliability, the truthfulness of scripture, but he says, the scripture cannot deceive us as long as we understand it properly. But 
It may, if perverted, distorted, prove the occasion of confirming us in a mistake. In other words, if I misunderstand something that scripture is saying, I can be confirmed in an error. It's not scripture's fault, but it is my misinterpretation, misapplication. The Holy Spirit cannot mislead those who are under his influence, but we may suppose that we are so, we might suppose that we are under the Spirit's influence when we're not. It may not be unreasonable to offer a few thoughts upon a subject of great importance to the peace of our minds and to the honor of our holy profession. And Newton proceeds to uh, give some instruction on this matter. That's what I want to do briefly this morning. And when we think about the idea of what does God want me to do, or how do I know God's will for my life, oftentimes I talk to students and I ask the question, um, what would you like to do after care? And many will say, whatever God wants me to do. And in some respects, that's a good answer. But I asked you what you would like to do after Cairn. And answering that question isn't necessarily in conflict with what God wants you to do. But the question that we have to ask ourselves when we talk about the will of God, and when we talk about things like finding the will of God, I want to know what God's will for my life is. The question that we need to ask, but often fail to ask, is what do we mean by the will of God? And lest you think that this is simply an abstract, intellectual, theological, conceptual um, discussion, I want to assure you, it's not. Carelessness in our language can easily lead to chaos in our lives. A thoughtless, flippant use of terminology that we become socialized in because everyone else is saying it is not beneficial for our maturing, for our sanctification, for the comfort of our souls. And so I want us to explore what do we really mean, but better yet, what does the Bible really mean when it refers to the will of God. And when you look into the scriptures and ask that question, you find, I will argue, that when the Bible refers to the will of God, and there are various ways that the Bible does refer to the will of God. So I'm not just speaking about these precise words. There's the counsel of God, the decree of God, the precepts of God. But Whatever sense of the will of God or whatever verbiage is used, I want you to consider that the Bible uses the will of God in two ways. The first has to refer to his sovereign will, that which he has decreed or ordained. This refers to all that God has planned or ordained from eternity past, and we only know this aspect of his will as history unfolds, or in some cases, 
where God is pleased to give predictive prophecy in terms of what is to come. But take note that when the Bible does refer to the sovereign will of God, it never places upon his people the responsibility to find it out beforehand so that they might obey it. So we are not responsible to know, to discover God's sovereign will. We learn his sovereign will as life is lived, and in some cases, as he is pleased to give us knowledge of what is to come. But the second sense in which the Bible refers to the will of God has to do with his moral will, sometimes referred to his will of precept. And this has to do with what it is that pleases God that we are enjoined to know and to obey. This aspect of the will of God, we are responsible to know and we are responsible to do. And when I say to do, I don't mean simply with respect to our outward behavior, but the moral will of God refers to our inward acts, our mental acts, our motives, and so forth. Now, there are a variety of examples that we could look at with respect to examples of each, but for the sake of time, I've just selected a few. Examples of the will of God where what is in mind is his sovereign will. Job in chapter 42 says, I know that you, speaking to the Lord, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's not using there the language of the will of God, but he's saying your purposes, what you have decreed, what you have ordained, cannot be thwarted. James says that in the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He gave us spiritual life so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. And then in one of the most um, difficult passages of the New Testament, having to do with the sovereign mercy of God, Paul expects, he anticipates that someone will say, well, if things are like what you're saying, Paul, why does God still hold us accountable? Why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? And the grammatical structure is such that the answer is no one. He is expecting the answer of no one can resist his will. That's referring to his sovereign will. But the Bible also talks, as I said, about his moral will. And examples here, Paul tells the Thessalonians and us that it is the will of God that we live sexually pure lives. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so in this sense, we know that this isn't God, this isn't referring to God's sovereign will, because unfortunately, we know all too often Christians disobey this with respect to sexual purity. In Romans 2, speaking to the Jews, Paul says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, 
And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in, law, in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And clearly here, because he is relating this to the law, he refers to approving what is excellent and using that in parallel with God's will, what is in mind is the moral will of God, his precepts. Now, in the passage that uh, Andrew read for us, Paul prayed for the Colossians. And among the things that he prayed is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is, I would submit, another example of the moral will of God. How do I come to that conclusion? Because in verse 10, he elaborates on what he's petitioning for them. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. These are characteristics of life that please the Lord and that we are to, by the Spirit's power, be cultivating and expressing, giving thanks to the Father, another aspect of the moral will of God, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps because of our individualism and because of our desire to um, know what decisions we should make, I, th I think our tendency is to read this request for the knowledge of his will as dealing with things like whom should I marry? What job should I take? Where should I live? But I want you to consider contextually, that's not the kind of stuff that Paul was having in mind. What Paul had in mind here when he was praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will is that they would be overflowing with a proper sense of how it is that they are to conduct their lives in ways that reflect and glorify God, that demonstrate Christ-likeness in character and motivation. So sometimes people have made a distinction between these two senses of the will of God, and they have referred to God's sovereign will as his secret will and his moral will as his revealed will. And oftentimes you will find them basing this on Deuteronomy 29, 29, where Moses makes a distinction between two senses of God's will. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are things that God has not revealed that belong to him alone. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the word, words of this law. In other words, 
God has revealed his moral will. And he has done so that we might obey him. Now, um, there is a question, lest you hear me and you think, you know what? I think Dr. Plummer is pulling some of that systematic theology stuff, and he's not really being true to the Bible. I want to meet your challenge. Because I think that unless we make this distinction, we cannot make sense of the Bible. And to illustrate that, I want to ask you a question. That's the question. Was the crucifixion of Jesus the will of God? Now, I think that we have to answer that question yes and no. But am I talking out of both sides of my mouth when I say that? I don't think so. I'm not affirming a contradiction, but I am making a distinction. A distinction that I think that I must make if I am to be faithful to the Bible. So let's take a look. If we mean the will of God with respect to God's sovereign will, what it is that he had purposed, then I think the answer is yes. I base that on Isaiah 53 for the sake of time. I will not read the whole passage, but I will draw your attention to verse 10, which says, yet it was the will of the Lord. It was Yahweh's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. When the apostles begin to experience persecution for preaching the resurrection and the religious leaders of the time come into conflict with them, when Peter and John are released and they go to other believers to tell them what had happened, Luke tells us when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? They quote some too. And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. But notice what they say next. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Clearly, this is an instance of the sovereign will of God. And so with respect to his sovereign will, the answer to the question, was the crucifixion of Jesus God's will? I think that we must say yes. But with respect to God's moral will, 
what it is that he has revealed that we as his creatures are bound to obey? I think the answer is no. In Acts chapter 7, for example, Stephen, prior to his stoning, as he is speaking with the religious leaders, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Murder is certainly contrary to the moral will of God. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So there was moral responsibility. And if we ask, was the crucifixion of Jesus according to the will of God with respect to his commandments, with respect to his moral precepts, then I think we are bound to say no. You with me? All right. Now the question is, does the Bible teach a third sense of the will of God? Because the ways that many Christians speak about finding the will of God suggests, and I would say assumes, that there is a third sense. Because when you're talking about finding the will of God, you're not talking about the sovereign will that you're not responsible to know beforehand. And in the cases that we're discussing in most time when we're talking about the will of God, they're not moral or non-moral issues. But rather, I think that many times what people are talking about in terms of finding the will of God is this third thing that I don't think the Bible actually tells us to pursue, where I want to know the prescribed path for the decisions that I am to make so that I don't miss God's will. But think about it. If God has a sovereign will that encompasses all of life, the very idea of missing God's will doesn't make sense. And when you realize that you don't have to live in the fear of missing God's will, of missing that third sense, there is a liberty of heart. But there's also a responsibility that falls upon us. Because what God is desirous of doing is making us wise people. God is not interested in simply telling us at every crossroads, go that way. Because if he were to do that, that could leave us unchanged. But what he is interested in doing and why it is that he has saved us, why he has given us his spirit, is so that we would progressively reflect our Lord in whom the treasures of wisdom and knowledge 
or hidden. That we might have a wisdom that assesses situations and priorities and make decisions that glorify God. I think one of the reasons that we like the idea of finding the will of God is because in our minds there is this thought, well, if God tells me what decision to make, I'm guaranteed success. If God tells me what decision to make, it's on him. I'm not responsible. Let me tell you something. Following the will of God, however you are going to think about that, there's too many examples in the Bible where people did follow. And success was not the consequence, at least by worldly standards. I want to recommend a book to you. Um, it's by a professor named Philip Carey. The, the book is Good News for Anxious Christians. And I know that I have um, referred this to, to several of you, but he's got a chapter in this book that is titled, Why You Don't Have to Find God's Will for Your Life. And this is a portion of what he says. The will of God is not the kind of thing you have to look for and find. And therefore, it's not the kind of thing you can miss. What you can do is disobey God's will. There he's referring to the moral will of God. That's easy to do. It's called sin. But in another sense, quite a different sense, you can never miss God's will no matter how badly you sin or disobey God. He's speaking of the sovereign will of God. For in addition to God's will revealed in his word, there's also his hidden will, as it's called, which means his providence governing the universe and all of history. His word we can disobey, but his providence is sovereign over heaven and earth, and we cannot overcome it or even escape it. It's not something we are capable of disobeying, much less missing. How does this all work? I have no idea. <laughs> but I know that the Bible affirms both. I know that as a follower of Christ, I am called to give my attention to him in his word and in prayer. And that I am, seek, I am to seek wisdom, as James says. Let me just say something about that. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally without reproach. We, I think, often misunderstand that, because the promise there is not, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and God's going to tell him what to do. The promise is, if you lack wisdom, ask God, and he will give you wisdom. And James, later in his letter, goes on to describe what wisdom looks like. And it is largely a character trait. It is becoming a particular kind of person with specific priorities and values. That's what Christian life is about, the pursuit of Christ-embodied wisdom. We started with John Newton. And some of you know that John Newton is almost my patron saint. 
But I'm going to close with something that he has said. But how then may the Lord's guidance be expected? In other words, now, before we go on here, what I'm, don't hear this. What I'm saying here has nothing to say about what God can't do. Nothing that I'm saying has anything to do with um, cessationism or, or you know, any of that, whether or not science still happened. That's not my point. What my point is, what does the Bible tell us our responsibility is when it comes to decision making? So keep that in mind. But how then may the Lord's guidance be expected? After what has been presented negatively, where he looks at, you know, these are all the wrong ways, the question may be answered in a few words. In general, God guides and directs his people by affording them in answer to prayer, the light of his Holy Spirit, who enables them to understand and to love the scriptures. The word of God furnishes us with just principles and right apprehensions to regulate our judgments and affections, and thereby to influence and direct our conduct. Those who study the scriptures in a humble dependence upon the divine teaching are taught to make, make a true estimate of everything around them, and are gradually, note that word, gradually, formed into a spirit of submission to the will of God. They thereby discover the nature and duties of their several situations and relations in life and the snares and temptations to which they are exposed. I want you to seriously consider a question. Are you more interested in being wise according to God's word than being successful according to the world's estimation. Because I think a lot of times when we're praying to know God's will, it's because we have a concept of success that we want to be guaranteed of, not first and foremost because we want to be wise which begins with the fear of the Lord. What you pray for, what I pray for, reveals what we value. Paul prayed for the Colossians, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual understanding, because he valued the formation of Christ-likeness in the followers of Jesus. I know we've been over a lot of ground in this, and so I want to give you an invitation. If anything that I have talked about confuses you, uh, perplexes you, uh, angers you, if you ever want to just talk further about what I have just skimmed the surface of this morning, contact me. I would love to talk with you about this, but we're not gonna do it over email. 
You can contact me via email, but we're going to get together and we're going to talk about it. That is an open invitation. As I said, from my years in pastoral ministry and in my own life, I've seen too many lives unnecessarily done harm because I think they have grasped a careless and unbiblical notion of what their responsibility is with respect to living a life pleasing to God. So I extend that to you. I hope that you will take me up on it. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Our Father, you are the God of kings and sparrows. The, the king's heart is like a watercourse in your hand. You direct it wherever you please. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your sovereign will. You have been pleased through your son, Jesus Christ, to give us new birth. And it is your intent that as we walk in him, that your spirit would form him in greater measure in us in terms of our outlook on life, the things that we delight in, our desire to bring you glory, to submit to you. Father, we do pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we would desire wisdom above all else. I pray that where there has been bondage with respect to this, that there would be liberty amongst those here. I pray, Lord, where there has been presumption, that there would be a greater caution. Lord, we do not want to appeal to your sovereignty as a covering or a rationalization for our sin. Guard us from that. But Lord, we just take great comfort in the knowledge that as we give our attention to prayerfully meditating upon your word, that you by your spirit are forming in us judgments and affections, wisdom to be employed as we face a multitude of decisions. Lord, take the things that we have just briefly touched upon this morning. May we not forget them, but ponder them, pray about them, and glory in the fact that you are sovereign over our lives. We're not in a maze. We don't have to worry about missing your will. You're good. Convince us of your providence of your goodness and of our responsibility to obey what you have revealed and in that to find our highest joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.